Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Right now? Yep, I just put us up. Yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'm annoyed right now because I'm, my phone, you know, this is, I don't know what this is, but it happens to you guys, but all the time these phone chargers, they break so damn easily, you know, and you get this, you plug in your phone and it's just like, you know, I mean, they're plugging in my phone and this thing, it's like not taking the signal. You got to wiggle it. Oh, um, yeah. It's annoying. Maybe I got to clean out my connector or something. But anyway. Yeah, they always, for me, they always, the, they start to come apart at that base part where you plug it into the phone and yeah. then it like either charges really slow or you have to do what you said like yeah, with it a bunch crazy about that. It's kind of, i think it's built-in obsolescence so you gotta keep buying these damn things it's crazy nadir we just we just we just did a podcast with brett share another, wow. cardiologist. So got another cardiologist. we have a cardiologist double header today it's so awesome to get <laughs> both you guys on here today and so i want to say it's great to actually get some time to talk to you because i've met you just for like you know a minute you know up in, up in, up in denver and boulder and we didn't have a chance to really chat but uh, it's great to finally see you. Um, now you are in, I think you said Clear Lake or somewhere near Houston. I know you're down in that area. Right, right. And that's my- I'm in, yeah, Clear Lake part of uh, Houston, which is where NASA is. Yeah, I, I, I used to live, I lived there for years. I, I grew up in, in Lake Jackson, Texas, which isn't too far. I don't know if you know where that is. It's just down the road. Oh, I know where it is. Uh, you know, I went to medical school. I did my residency down at UTMB down in Galveston. You know, I used to, you know, so I'm just, I was just always up and down I-45, you know, so I know exactly where you're at. And so it's, it's hot and humid there. I'll tell you that, man. <laughs> no, the weather is perfect. Uh, right now it is, but come July. Come July, it's going to be humid. And, and, I, I was just down in Houston a few weeks ago, so it's, yeah, it's it's nice this time of year down there. Yeah, my mom and my mom and sister still live in that area. My, my sister's up in uh, Spring, and my mom's uh, up near, I guess, uh, Sugar, not Sugarland. Yeah, it's near Sugarland, I guess. Yeah, but she's up in that area. But uh, anyway, so you know, Brett told us to ask you specifically because he said he said I said what what should, what, what should we what should we ask Nadir about? He said well. Nadir has some pretty interesting thoughts regarding, uh, you know, why we see people not always, but but sometimes see their LDL cholesterol rise on a low carbohydrate diet. And I know you have, I guess he said you had a, a thought behind that. So before we get that, tell us a little bit about who you are for the people that don't know who you are real quick, and then we can get into the, the nitty gritty stuff. So, um, uh, just one quick note before that is that we need a great orthopedic surgeon in Clear Lake. So I would like to recruit you up to here. So my Sean, mom, my mom welcome like anytime. Yeah. You might want to take him up on that offer, Sean. I, when I was in Houston three weeks ago, I was at a half marathon marathon down there. And there had to have been about 50 people that were wearing uh, beef t-shirts during the race. So oh, yeah. <laughs> that's your area. Texas <laughs> As we know, Texas has the largest uh, cattle herd in the U.S. You know, I think there's something like 24 million of our cattle or something mm -hmm. in Texas. Texas is a good place for beef. 
some good barbecue places out there, that's for sure. I mean, if you want brisket, in my view, and, I, and I'm biased, but I think Texas got has got the best. But anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> tell us. So now, where are you now? You tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, how you got into medicine, what you're doing out there, and then we can start going into these stuff. So I grew up in a very old town in India. It's called Hyderabad. My mom was a physician, and I always dreamt of becoming a physician and um, moved to Texas here and did a cardiology fellowship. And, um, you know, I'm by nature a little bit of a cynic. I'm a little bit of a skeptic. And um, I found myself being extremely good at uh, interventional cardiology. I could put in stents in people that other people had difficulty doing that. And uh, so when I became a, a cardiologist back in 1993, uh, after several years of fellowship, I used to tell my uh, colleagues that, look, none of the things that we do work, treatment of hypertension doesn't work, diabetes doesn't work. I'm totally disgruntled about what dyslipidemias are. I don't want to see patients in the office. You take care of them. When, when they need something done, I'll fix them in the cardiac cath lab. And uh, somehow I managed to do that until about uh, 2013. Um, I have probably done somewhere in the range of 300 to 500 coronary interventions every year for since 1990, since I began my fellowship. So you know that you could consider me as a person who's a cath lab rat, you know, like how sometimes people just dwell in the cardiac cath lab. So about 2013, um, I was a part of a cycling team and I was the doctor for the racing team. And I wanted to keep up with the racers. And I found myself at a weight of about um, 180. So this was right around the 2012 and 13 season. 180 pounds at five feet, eight inches, I mean, five feet, 10 inches. And I wanted to lose 20 pounds to be competitive with them. And I couldn't do that. I could not do that, no matter how much I tried. And that was a year of Chris Froome. Chris Froome is a Tour de France cyclist. And uh, he had some uh, reports that he was on a low carb diet. And at that time I was thinking, I was sitting somewhere and listening to this gentleman by the name of Zishan Arian uh, from Australia. And he was a rugby physician for the Australian rugby team. And he was talking about the low carb diet. And I said, you know, I don't know why I never went in this direction. This seems to make so much sense. So up until that point, I was even trying to become a vegan and cut out all animal fat and animal protein and I'm a pretty determined guy and no matter what I did, I could not lose those 20 pounds. So I said, let me try this. And it made so much sense. And within a few months, I was able to lose the weight. I didn't feel hungry. I felt great. And uh, by this time I had a large following of patients and I would see them after I did an intervention. And I started taking a little bit more interest in my office. I said, if this works in me, why shouldn't I try it in my patients? 
And that was one of the most gratifying experiences. And I've never looked back since then. So since 2013, I've been kind of exploring this area, looking at podcasts and um, doing a, a monthly uh, seminar for my patients so that I am involved, so that I'm constantly learning. And I tell you, it's been the most gratifying journey in the last six years, five to six years, that my patients seem to benefit. I have personally benefited. And I think it's a win-win. And also in this process, I have come to meet some great people, but also recognized that as physicians, as to how many wrong things we do, and most of us are very good people. I mean, we, we, we do everything without any, uh, any malice in it. And without really even looking at personal gain, but yet because we follow the guidelines, yet because we don't question the pharmaceutical industry and because we don't question our make big associations like American Heart and American College or the American Diabetic Association that we are doing real harm to our patients. And I think that our community, uh, the low carb community is a grassroots effort to change all of this. I don't think the change is ever going to come from the American Heart Association coming back and saying, hey, we did all of these things wrong and we want to change. Or the ADA saying that, hey, we've treated diabetes wrong all these years and we want to have a fundamental paradigm shift. Or the Gastroenterology Association coming and saying, hey, everything we told you about PPIs is basically wrong. You know, Stomach acid is highly important for human health. Or the nutritional society is coming and saying, hey, our bodies are designed to eat fundamentally differently than what we told you. So I don't know if that gives you a little preamble to our discussion, um, but that's who I am in a nutshell. Yeah, dear, I, I completely empathize with your desire to be in the cath lab because when I was, you know, in clinic, we and all of us orthopedic surgeons were the same way. We're like, ah, oh, clinic, get me in the OR where I can where I can do stuff. You know, I can actually make a difference. And and you know, you can you, you got you know, it's fun actually getting in there. You know, and and, and the same thing. You, know, I mean, I was very you know, I could do a knee replacement and you know, re reliably in forty five minutes. The same thing with a hip. You know, you just get there where you get very efficient, and very good at these things. And, 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 you know, it's your kind of your happy place. But, but like you, I, I made a personal discovery about diet, nutrition, and like, it's working for me. Why don't I try it for my patients? And the same thing starts to happen. And, and the problem is, is this what you talked about? Our guidelines, our standards of care, our medical system is not set up for doctors to take the time to practice lifestyle medicine uh, in many specialties. And, and interventional cardiology is, is your, I'm sure, well aware hospitals love interventional cardiologists because they generate a lot of revenue. They love orthopedic surgeons because they generate a lot of revenue. But if you decide, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to take some time out and not do that and, and, and go lifestyle, it, it can ruffle some feathers. And I, and I, 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 real, I learned that the hard way. But, um, you know, it, it's so important and we're seeing this grassroots movement. And I think with the advent of podcasts and social media and all the rest of the stuff is out there. I mean, there's a lot of silliness that, that goes on in social media. There's no doubt about it. And there's a lot of problems with it, but at the same time, we're seeing a huge groundswell of 
patients that are frustrated because they're not getting better, but also, and, and just as importantly, and perhaps more importantly, physicians that get frustrated because they're not seeing their patients get better. And the same thing you suffer from, I don't want to deal with metabolic disease. I don't want to deal with dyslipidemia in the clinic because no one ever gets better because I'm, I'm, I've got the wrong tools. You know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, all I'm doing is giving these people drugs. Half the time they're non-compliant and I blame the patient and they don't work the other half the time or, or, or it only masks their symptoms. And so I think we're, we're hopeful. I don't know if we're going to reach this, if we're at the tipping point, if we're going to reach it. I mean, we, we certainly see that I think we're making a big enough difference right now that, that it's starting to worry some people in the pharmaceutical industry and, and some of these other companies where they're actively, you know, we almost see this in the media, actively waging a, a campaign against, you know, low carb diets or ketogenic diets, or, you know, even to some degree carnivore diets, just because they think it, it threatens their, their, their livelihood. Yeah. Not to be too conspiratorial, but I am a little bit. <laughs> no, I think I'm a, a similarly uh, quite a cynic and I uh, run into problems with my colleagues um, who have reported me to the administration saying that uh, uh, I practice uh, medicine outside the guidelines. And uh, so it's a little bit of a tough uh, matter to navigate. And this is where, uh, you know, people like me are maybe a little bit on the abrasive side, but this is where people like Brett Share and others who are like, the true uh, messengers for our society to communicate with mainstream medicine and say, hey, let's have a good conversation. Uh, let us see how we can modulate. Because one of the first slides that I showed over at Low Carb Denver is that physicians and societies are not listening to the grassroots effort that is there to change treatment patterns for dyslipidemia or for diabetes. Uh, and if we don't do that as physicians, we're going to get buggy whipped for treatment of chronic diseases. You know, I'm not talking about somebody coming in with a heart gallbladder, a surgeon takes them, saves their life, or somebody coming in with a heart attack and you go ahead and fix their heart, or somebody com comes in with a fracture and you go ahead and fix them. Those are all important things that we are doing. But in terms of treatment of chronic diseases like hypertension, diabetes, coronary heart rate disease, dementia, we are basically missing the point. We, we, are, we are stooges. We are, we are basically subservient to the pharmaceutical industry. And our societies, unfortunately, are also subservient to them because so much of their funding is coming from pharmaceutical industries. And that is a tragedy. That's a tragedy for not only the U.S. but for the entire world. Nadir, do you think, um, with the, in, in regards to the pharmaceutical stuff, do you think it's uh, more that these things are getting encouraged to be pushed upon people, or is it just as much or more a situation where the user, a potential user? is looking to kind of take an easier way out rather than doing some sort of lifestyle intervention? Um, I, would, I would say it is the, it's the former, the, the first uh, paradigm that you mentioned, rather than the, the user, rather than the patient, because the patient themselves for the last 50 years have been given wrong lifestyle advice. They have been told that, hey, eat a plant-based food, 
eat carbohydrates, uh, eat complex carbohydrates, eat vegetable oils. It's very hard to remain healthy for approximately 70% of Americans with that. Now they're gonna be uh, a 30%, 30 to 40% of thin people who are going to remain healthy no matter what they do. And just before this podcast, I was thinking that in my practice, I see about 10 to 20% of obese people who are completely metabolically healthy. They're just overweight, but their fat tissue is so healthy that they are not insulin resistant, they have good lipid profile, they have low inflammation markers. Similarly, about 30 to 40% of thin people for whatever reason have all these great biomarkers despite eating a traditional standard American diet. And these people, I think, in addition to these heavy people have one other advantage, and that is that they have excellent satiety signals. They know when to stop eating. Um, they probably also have a sense of proportion. They're also probably physically much more active than, the, than their heavier counterparts. But for the vast majority of Americans, I think that the nutritional guidelines have failed them into a chronic disease process. And that is the reason why it is not for lack of effort. It is because the fundamental advice is wrong that they are leaning more and more towards a medicine to fix their health. And unfortunately, there is not a medicine that would fix diabetes without lifestyle. And if you really get down to the basics, dyslipidemia is so closely tied with metabolic syndrome that you cannot treat dyslipidemia with drugs. And we can see that, we can take any clinical trial and just by examining the trial, you can see how little success we get in that trial. So, you know, it was a long-winded way of answering your question. I think it is the former um, rather than the lack of incentive and motive on the part of the patient to do lifestyle interventions. Yeah, I think this is something interesting. I was, just, I was in my car the other day and a radio ad came on. It was for CVS Pharmacy. And one of the, and the catch line was something, you know, we're going to make it easier for you to get the medications to keep you healthy. And when I listen to that, I, I just, I, 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 I dismiss the idea that medicine keeps people healthy. Uh, you know, it may mask some symptoms, but it does no way make people healthier uh, for, 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 you know, with, with rare exception, particularly when it comes to chronic diseases. And so no one out there is suffering from a prescription drug deficiency syndrome. You know, it's not like, you know, we, not, we, we have two little levels of metformin floating around our blood or Lipitor, as I was led to believe in medical school 20 some years ago, where People were telling me we need to put statins in the drinking water because everybody's lipids are too high. I mean, we're not suffering from a lack of pharmaceutical drugs. That's not why we have why people are sick, but we have this mentality and people have bought into that. And we're seeing it even in our children where we, we, we start these children on, they need supplements. You know, even, even from, from, you know, kids are taking their, their, their multivitamins and the probiotics because the diet is so poor. And we're, we're kind of conditioning our population to be used to, to depending upon drugs, pills, supplements, so on and so forth. I mean, it's very frustrating to say. But when you talk about dyslipidemia, let's get into that a little bit more because 
I think there's some there's some controversy about what exactly is dyslipidemia. What is dyslipidemia to you? So yes, in this uh, process, um, what I really generally tell my patients is that I'm looking to improve your cholesterol quality. I'm not necessarily looking to reduce your cholesterol level. In fact, all the interventions that we are going to do is perhaps as you get healthier is going to increase the level of your cholesterol. So I think a very good lipoprotein profile in a healthy person would be somebody who has low levels of triglycerides and high levels of HDL. And unlike most cardiologists, I have come to believe that when you have low levels of triglycerides and high level of HDL, a pattern that indicates that you're healthy would be also to have high levels of LDL cholesterol. Now, people call LDL as the bad cholesterol. And it might be good for us to take a, a step back and say, what, when, you talk, when your doctor talks about LDL cholesterol, what does he mean when he's talking about triglycerides, what he means? And basically to explain to a person who's perhaps not as cognizant about this as you are, is to say that both cholesterol and triglycerides are fatty, are waxy substances that don't dissolve in, in water. And our blood is watery, it's an aqueous medium. And our body, in order to carry fat and cholesterol in the bloodstream, it packages them into these molecules, which are called lipoprotein molecules, so that they dissolve in water. They have a, a layer of phospholipid that makes it dissolvable. And it has some key identifying proteins that permit it to carry out its functions. And the core, the inner core of that is triglycerides and cholesterol. So when people talk about uh, LDL cholesterol, they're not talking about cholesterol itself. They're talking about the specific lipoprotein. And when people are talking about triglycerides, they're mostly referring it to either the VLDL, which is the very low density lipoprotein, or if it's in a post-absorptive state, like after you have eaten, then it could also include chylomicrons. So, um, it's important to recognize by taking a step back that these lipoproteins are evolutionarily very conserved molecules. So in other words, if you go to an insect, it also carries triglycerides and cholesterol in a lipoprotein-like molecule. And over the years, these have evolved. And it's important to recognize that the body makes these things for a specific purpose. Like for example, I'm convinced based on looking at molecular studies that LDL is a very important host defense mechanism. It fights bacteria, it fights viruses. And this is shown in biochemical bench studies in which they've actually looked at the LDL molecule neutralizing bacteria. It's also seen in clinical studies because if you follow a group of people with familial hypercholesterolemia, the family version of high cholesterol, these people are at lower risk of infections. If you follow critically ill patients 
in ICU who are in septic shock. The people who tend to do better are people with high cholesterol and people in whom the cholesterol recovers, indicating that LDL is involved in host defense, in fighting the bacteria, in fighting the viruses. Another important function of LDL is to transport CoQ10. As you know, being uh, an athlete, being uh, a muscle builder, that muscle function is vitally dependent on the health of your mitochondria. And CoQ10 is like the spark plug for the mitochondria. Without a spark plug, the engine cannot burn fuel. And without CoQ10, the mitochondria cannot function well because they cannot burn sugar and fats. So LDL is the molecule that carries CoQ10. We also don't recognize that there are some tissues in our body that don't make any cholesterol of their own. One of them are the ovaries and the testes. And the primary uh, way for them to get the raw material cholesterol to convert cholesterol to testosterone or cholesterol to estrogens is the LDL molecule. We also don't recognize that the adrenal gland also depends on the LDL molecule to supply its cholesterol so that it can make the corticosteroids, the cortisone, the cortisol that we need to deal with stress. So there are a number of functions of LDL that have not been studied, that have not been highlighted, in part because we are so fearful of this molecule causing heart disease that we have not focused on it. Or they may be, you know, to somebody like me who is a skeptic, I would say, hey, this is a, a not necessarily an omission. It is a it's intentional by the pharmaceutical industry, by the big societies to not study this and not to educate our medical students about it because there is some gain, there is some bias towards it. And uh, you can go a step further and say, I don't want to stop here, but I want to show the various uh, demographic studies in which they have studied cohorts in which there are prospective studies that show that people with high LDL have lower mortality, lower cancer risk, have better cognitive function, because I can rattle off these studies to you saying that Malcolm Kendrick has looked at 70,000 patients and said, hey, people with the highest LDL have the lowest mortality, have the lowest cardiovascular mortality. There are people in um, Leiden, Netherlands, who've taken patients over the age of 85 and followed them for 10 years and showed that the people with the highest cholesterol level live the longest, that people with the highest cholesterol level have the lowest ca cancer mortality, that people with the highest cholesterol levels have the lowest risk of getting pneumonias, which is something that old people die of. Or I can also take another approach and say, hey, there is this Lothian birth cohort from Edinburgh, England, in which they looked at 1,000 people at age 70 
and clearly looked at cholesterol and cognitive performance. And it shows that the people with the best cognitive performance had the highest cholesterol levels. Bless you. Uh, you, you suppressed your uh, sneeze quite well. The, the, the nice feature of the mute button too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering why I was not able to listen to, uh, to Sean. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I had my, my microphone on mute while I'm listening so I can sneeze and cough and scratch my head and do things and not disturb us. But go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Fascinating. So um, I, I was almost done. You know, that, that is the science I come behind. And the, the other thing about just a little bit about the Lothian birth cohort is that about 30% of the individuals in the Lothian birth cohort were on statins. And you could clearly see that statins reduced their cognitive performance, uh, their processing speed, their verbal ability, their IQ was all lower compared to the group that were not taking statins. And then in my own personal practice, I can say I've been an interventional cardiologist now for 29 years because I'm taking my fellowship into consideration because I did interventions in my fellowship. And I have seen a, a discrepancy, at least in my own observation, in which I have seen people with lifetime of low LDL levels with extensive coronary artery disease. And I have seen individuals in their 90s with an LDL level of 200 with almost clean coronary arteries. So, you know, it, there is a tendency to dismiss an individual experience and say you need randomized clinical trials to prove all of this. But this is not an isolated observation for me. Dr. Debeki, who was one of the world famous cardiovascular surgeon, said that, hey, I see no relationship between cholesterol level and vascular disease. And in my own hospital, Dr. Robert Smiley, who worked for 50 years as a vascular surgeon, as a heart surgeon, corroborates the same findings. He says, look, you want me to take a statin because I have some cardiac event, but I can tell you, I have not seen this in my practice and I refuse to take this medicine. And then finally, if I can be given a little bit more extra time, I can tell you that from as a physician and treating patients, I think that the community is not listening to our patients. When they come and talk about being tired, fatigued, muscle aches, joint symptoms, getting knee arthritis, getting back pains, having cognitive issues, we are just dismissing that and saying, hey, this is just aging, this is nothing, these are non-specific symptoms. But we are not listening to them. I think we should listen to them and say, hey, this is a possible side effect of medicines. Let's consider taking you off of this and monitoring you. So uh, then again, that, that brings out that skeptic in me. This episode of Human Performance Outliers is brought to you by fellow carnivore and Legal Shield associate Doug Lee. Through Legal Shield's smartphone app, Doug is helping to level the playing field by bringing affordable legal services to everyone right on their phones. For just $24.95 a month, families have instant access to a local team of lawyers working on your behalf, providing legal advice, traffic violation assistance, will preparation, IRS audit assistance, 
family and domestic services, and contract and document review, just to name a few. Doug also offers ID Shield, the most comprehensive identity protection and recovery service in all of North America. Members get access to a licensed private investigator to help resolve any identity theft issues that arise. Last year alone, there were more than 780 reported data breaches compromising the identities of nearly 170 million people. Responding quickly to ID theft is the best way to prevent serious complications and protect your good name. Doug offers business plans and gun owners plans as well. So head over to douglee.info, that's D-O-U-G-L-E-E dot I-N-F-O, to get the app and learn more about how Legal Shield has been protecting families for over 40 years. It is very, uh, you know, interesting to think that so much of the stuff we, contrib- we contribute to normal aging. You know, a lot of times people come in and we kind of shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, it's a normal part of aging or it's genetics or it's just bad luck. And we never, you know, go, go beyond that. You know, it, it, it's just, you know, I just... I just don't see that in any other species where, where you expect some, some animal to spend, you know, half of its life in a, in a state of disease prior to death, whether it's arthritis, whether it's, you know, obesity or anything else. It just doesn't make sense. So why should humans spend a majority of their life dealing with some chronic disease, you know, and then, and then dying 50 years later? It, it seems like the natural course of any species on the planet is you live a, a you live a life and then and then you may decline for the last short period of your life and then you die and I think humans are no different but we've come to expect uh, the state of disease to be normal it's not necessarily uh, it's it's well it's not normal it's, it's just common that's very common and we associate that with being normal when it's actually very much not normal at least I, I don't think it should be I I couldn't agree with you uh, more. Um, I think that there are two other areas that I want to touch on, if I may. Uh, One of them is this conflict that we have with mainstream medicine now that we are prescribing a low-carb, relatively high-fat diet or an animal food diet to our patients. And we see that most of their markers improve, their insulin levels goes down, their triglyceride goes down, their HDL goes up, their inflammation markers get better, but then the LDL goes up. So I think that one is that we need to explain why the LDL is going up and we need to figure out what is the heterogeneity in that, like how many of us will have an LDL go up and by how much. And the second thing that, we should do is that we should take, you know, we are in a, you are in a unique position. I'm in a unique position because we understand medicine. We understand pathophysiology. We understand a bit about human nutrition. We understand our digestive anatomy to some degree. And all of us are to some degree uh, aware of the extensive tissue hypothesis. So I would like to end and figure out what we think based on our collective knowledge from all these different disciplines as to what is the most optimal diet for humans. And and I don't know if you want to get into that, but those are the two areas that I would like to cover. We would love to get into that. I'm I'm always happy to talk about that. And and obviously my bent is we ate a lot of meat, but um, 
you know, I mean, it, it, it is true that uh, when we look at all these things and we look at the effect, but I want to, just before we do that, I mean, I really, because we got into this with Brett Shear a little bit about, you know, the fact that a certain percentage of people, when they go on a low carb, higher fat diet, whether it's meat-based or ketogenic or whatever, will see often even a dramatic rise in our LDL. And I like the fact that you talk about the quality of cholesterol, because I think we need to maybe further expound upon, you know, is it oxidized? Is it glycated? Uh, is it small particle? Is it large particle? I think those things, maybe we need to understand that more. And then why does that occur? Why is it happening for some people and other people it's not happening for? And, and I don't know if we know why that is. I don't know if you have any insight beyond what, what just no. random chance. Sure, sure. Well, uh, I'll do the best I can. So I'll uh, put out several observations. First is that uh, in five years of practice, uh, I have seen that in the majority of my patients who improve on a low-carb diet, and when I say improve, uh, they're reducing their weight, they're dropping their insulin levels, they have evidence that they are in ketosis of some kind, invariably their LDL goes up. Now, there is a variation in how much it goes up, but invariably it goes up. And I think it is foolish for us to think that the LDL does not go up with a low-carb diet. So that is one. The second piece of evidence is that there is a recent study, and, and I can send you a link later, I, I recall it pretty clearly. And that is that they took a group of normal people who were not overweight, and they were relatively young, and they put them on a low-carb diet. And not one of them, their LDL went down. Now, there was a variation. The LDL went up from roughly around 4 to 10% to about 200% in that group. But there was nobody in whom the LDL actually came down. The third is based on some clinical trials in humans as well as some mouse studies. And this is an area of my uh, interest because I presented this information at Low Carb Denver. I think that from a mechanistic, from a pathophysiologic standpoint, or, or from a physiologic standpoint, when you go on a low carb diet, and I take the extreme example of a low carb diet as fasting, as intermittent fasting. So when you're fasting, you run out of uh, glycogen and sugar reservoirs within about eight to 12 hours. So at that point, the body has to rely on oxidation of fat for energy. Now in the beginning, there are certain tissues that are resistant to converting from burning sugar to burning fat. And in that time frame, we have gluconeogenesis. We, our, our body makes the sugar. But over a period of time, the gluconeogenesis actually goes down substantially as the ketone bodies are going up and brain starts utilizing majority of fuel as ketones. And other organs also start using ketones for fuel instead of sugar. So when you look at the biochemical pathways and it needed people like you and I to figure this out is that the fat comes into the mitochondria and it has one of three pathways in the liver. Liver is the only organ that makes ketones. So when the fat is coming into the mitochondrial uh, cell, I mean, in, into the mitochondria of a liver cell, 
It can either be converted to energy, which is ATP, by going through the curb citric acid cycle. So that's one pathway. But the liver need, doesn't need that much energy. It's a metabolic organ that is geared towards supplying energy to other organs. So the major function of the liver is to make ketone bodies. So it can take the fat and convert the fat to ketones. And the enzymatic machinery that is making ketones relies on a key branch point, which is called HMG-CoA. So before you make ketones, the mitochondria make HMG-CoA. And it was surprising to me that nobody had really actually looked at it, but HMG-CoA is where you can either get converted to ketones or it can go down HMG-CoA reductase and become mevalonic acid, which is a precursor of cholesterol. So the enzymatic machinery that we have to make ketones is the same enzymatic machinery we have to make cholesterol. So if you're going to drive up the oxidation of fat, and if you're going to increase ketone body production, by design, you're going to increase cholesterol synthesis in the liver. Now, I don't say this lightly. And, and the reason I don't is that I base it on several animal studies. Like you, I'm a big Twitter user. And I have put out several studies out there uh, in which people are given an SGLT2 inhibitor for treatment of diabetes. So what this does is that it goes and blocks the reabsorption of sugar in the kidneys. So you are dumping a lot of sugar in urine. I call it a kidney poison. Uh, people object to that. But as you start dumping sugar in urine, the body changes to fat oxidation because it's not finding sugar, it changes to fat oxidation. Now what happens in, even in people who are not even subsisting on a low carb diet, people in the study were just eating regular, but because they were dumping sugar, the body started burning fat. What do you think happened to their LDL levels? They went up. Right. Now, they did the same studies in a mouse model. And in the mouse model, you could clearly see that these animals that were being given the SGLT2, there is an increase in the synthesis of LDL. There's a reduction in the production of VLDL, which is a triglyceride-rich lipoprotein molecule. It's a little technical for most people, but they are, if they are interested, they can follow my Twitter feed. But not just that, what is happening is that since the liver is making more cholesterol, it wants to eliminate more cholesterol. So the bile acid excretion, you know, by the way, cholesterol is not metabolic fuel. You cannot burn it like you can burn fat and like you can burn uh, carbohydrates. Cholesterol is a structural component of every cell. It is a component of hormones, but the body does not have any mechanism to metabolize it away. So it eliminates that in feces. And the way it does that is that it makes bile acids from cholesterol. Now, bile acids have many functions, but one of their function is cholesterol elimination. So in this animal model, not only was it found that you eliminate more bile, but it was also found that modified LDL, LDL that you talked about that is oxidized, 
uh, that is glycated, that is picked up by the macrophages. So the LDL cholesterol that was altered, the excretion of that was increased in these uh, animals. So it indicates a very good homeostatic regulation, which means that when you're burning fat, by design, you're gonna increase cholesterol synthesis. And when you're increasing cholesterol synthesis, the liver doesn't need more cholesterol. So it's going to absorb less and eliminate more in feces. And not only is it going to do that, but the body is also becomes better at eliminating oxidized LDL. So this is not my personal clinical experience. I'm talking about these studies that have already been done but it takes people from different backgrounds to put it together so that we can understand human physiology better. And I think the low carb community is the right community to tell these researchers, hey, you've done some real good work. Now let's start connecting the dots. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, and, and I, the one beautiful thing about Twitter and other social media is we have all these people out there filling in the dots and we start to see this sort of almost a cohesive type of new theory emerging, you know, as to, as to what, you know, what, how things might have gotten driven. So let's, let's talk about diet a little bit because you, wanted, you alluded to the fact that, you know, what are humans, what's human food to you? What do you think? <laughs> um. Yeah, so it, 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 it takes a little um, time to get to that conclusion. And of course, I, know I didn't arrive at it right in the beginning. And uh, what I told my patients five years ago, I told them several things wrong. I used to promote them eating a lot of fiber. And I apologize to my patients for doing that. Um, because... Uh, the things that you should understand is that one is that the human brain is very expensive. Um, there is the expensive tissue hypothesis that explains why the human brain went from 500 grams to 1500 grams. Now there are several people who say the expensive tissue hypothesis is wrong and these are the comparative studies that we have done to show that it is wrong. And I'll accept that. Uh, although I, I think that they are only partially correct, but nobody would argue with you when you say that, hey, the human brain consumes about 20 to 22% of total calories per day, and that it's an energy expensive organ. So I think everybody would agree on that. Then the second point that everybody would agree is that when you look at human digestive anatomy, it is heavily weighed towards the small intestines. So the small intestines are probably about 60%, 56 to 60% of the weight of the digestive system. And their primary purpose is to absorb nutrients. And the third thing almost everybody would agree about is that we have very limited capacity to do fermentation and the fermentation is at the end of our digestive process, which is in the colon. So that's only about 10% uh, in terms of its weight. And if you compare it to our ape ancestors, our colon size is about 10% when you normalize to body weight. 
And then finally, we also have to agree on two other points. And that is that we need high quality nutrients that we shouldn't have to process a lot because we don't have good processing capacity like ruminants do. And number two that we got to agree is that we were bestowed with a pretty limited pancreatic capacity, the capacity to make insulin. Now, not all of us, maybe 10, 20% of us have a very strong pancreas. They can pour enormous amounts of insulin and even get to the size of a sumo wrestler. But most of us, the pancreas is not designed to handle a large glycemic load uh, in terms of carbohydrates and certainly not designed to handle a large amount of processed and refined carbohydrate, which would come under not only a large amount of carb, but under glycemic index, which is high. So when you put all of these factors together, I would have to submit to you that the food that we are designed to eat is basically animal-based food. That <clears throat> we can probably live on plant food like tubers and um, other such carbohydrates, but that is perhaps a less desirable um, way for us to subsist because I can rattle through a number of ingredients, essential ingredients that are lacking in, uh, in, in plant-based food. So I'm so glad that people like you and Amber are a part of our community <clears throat> because you are the people who are starting this conversation saying that, hey, maybe the way we should eat is like this for optimal health. So in short, I'd have to say that based on evaluating um, human anatomy, evaluating and, and agreeing that the human brain is very expensive, looking at some essential ingredients that are found only in animal-based food, looking at the fact that we don't really process fiber very well, and then also looking at the fact that fiber and plant food interfere with the absorption of protein and certain key minerals. I, can't, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm glad that you are there. And I don't think it's altogether surprising that you have so many million followers who are gravitating towards you because that message resonates with them. Nadir, quick question with some of that stuff too, because I think when when I started thinking um, in more detail about like a meat-based or animal-based diet versus say a plant-based diet, one thing that was kind of caught my attention right away was just like the bioavailability of nutrients in those two mm -hmm. groups. And, you know, you might be able to grab vegetables that have a way higher concentrate of certain minerals and micronutrients. But when you look at how readily they're taken up by the body, they're, they're almost always way lower. And then you look at something like organ meats uh, or most meats in general, the uptake of the nutrients is a very high percentage. So it's like a very efficient process. And I've always had a hard time getting past that as like a message more or less from, from a, a human appropriate nutrition plan that we should be focusing on things that our bodies are really good at absorbing all the nutrients from versus something where we can maybe get half of it from. Am I on the right track with that type of uh, mindset or is that kind of a too simple or too simplified? No, I, I think that um, I couldn't agree with you more. And I wish that healthcare people also knew that. Like, for example, 
not many healthcare uh, physicians know that heme iron, that is the iron found in muscle meat or in liver, in the globulin form, the heme form, we have a receptor in our intestines to absorb that. On the other hand, the iron that is found in vegetables, even though present in higher quantities, we can't can absorb it. Similarly, magnesium, calcium, these are a lot more bioavailable from animal food than from plant food. And similarly, protein is a more complete protein. Like for example, animal protein will have taurine. Animal protein will have all the essential amino acids. It's also highly bioavailable compared to any vegetable protein. So this message that we evolved in some way to eat a large amount of our nutrition from animal food has to be uh, disseminated to the public. And, and I'm glad you're doing that. And the more you do it, the better it is. The more you do it with a physiological explanation, the better it is. I'm glad that the um, animal sourced food uh, proponents talk about that there are anti-nutrients in plants that prevent the absorption. Like for example, if you eat nuts without cooking them, they have phytates. And these phytates bind to protein, bind to calcium, bind to minerals, prevent their absorption. We should also recognize that large amounts of fiber will neutralize stomach acid. And when you neutralize stomach acid, you don't process protein as well. And we should also recognize that as we get older, we make less stomach acid. So that is one of the benefits of being human because we not just depended on our biology, but we learned the art of cooking. We learned the art of pre-digesting protein so that even as we get older and as our physiology degrades, that we absorb the amount of nutrients that we need because we can put our cognition into our digestive process and pre-cook our food. So, um, beautiful point. Nadir, I want to go back. This is something because I haven't really looked into much, but you talked about the relative uh, uh, sufficient or insufficiency of the human pancreas. Now, do you have some, is there some comparative anatomy that you've looked at comparing human pancreatic capacity versus other animals like other primates that, that, that show that they have a more robust pancreas and therefore are better designed to you know, secrete amylase and, and pancreatic amylase or whatever, you know, and, and to deal with a higher plant, plant-based plant food. I, I, I just haven't seen that. I guess I haven't looked for it yet. Maybe you've seen that. Uh, that is a very good question. <clears throat> the, the basis for my uh, assumption and for my theories is the following, following uh, methodology that I have used. One of them is that about 70-80% of Americans are pre-diabetic, are insulin resistant, are hyperinsulinemic, and have destroyed some portion of their pancreas. So that in and of itself gives you evidence that we are not designed to eat a refined carbohydrate diet. Because if 70% of the population gets diseased on a diet, you know that that is not the right thing for us. The second thing is that when you go to comparative anatomy, 
um, there is no real refined carbohydrate available in nature. You know, fruits are seasonal and they carry fructose with it that elicits a different kind of uh, a metabolic sequence. And the animals that eat plant food are designed to eat low quality plant food in which there is a lot of cellulose. And the cellulose is acted on by the bacteria. So to be completely honest with you, I have not compared the pancreas of a ruminant versus the pancreas of humans. I don't think that the pancreas of the ruminant is very strong because it doesn't need it to be strong. Because that's not, it's, it's not, no animal in this world is consuming refined carbohydrate in large quantities, unlike the humans are. But it's an interesting question. It, it's something that I should look into. But my basis for saying that we are bestowed with a relatively poor pancreas is based on the disease process that we are seeing which is that 70% of American population is either pre-diabetic, hyperinsulinemic, or insulin resistant. Nadir, let me just, if you don't mind, um, you said you grew up in India. And India, as much of us know, has a large segment of the population that is, adopts a vegetarian lifestyle. And we now see a pretty significant amount of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Now, granted, there's 1.3 billion people there, so you're going to expect to see a lot of disease. But, but nonetheless, we're, we're seeing that in that population. What, do, you, do you go back there? Do you communicate with people back, you know, back, back from your home? And, and what, do you, what are your thoughts on what's going on there right now? So <clears throat> I talk a lot about this uh, important information that you just uh, elucidated. Uh, the prevalence of diabetes is much greater in India and in China. And if you compare that population to a Caucasian population, they become diabetic and have metabolic syndrome at a normal body weight. So majority of Indians have a BMI less than 25, and yet their prevalence of diabetes is greater than that we found, find in the US. And I think I have two theories about that. I don't know which one is correct. Uh, number one, I think, has to do with the kind of food that they eat. The amount of animal, animal food consumed in India is perhaps the lowest. So if you look at meat consumption, it is one of the lowest in India compared to Hong Kong, which is one of the highest. Hong Kong has the highest life expectancy Indian life expectancy is one of the lowest. And I think that the food that they're eating is such predominantly plant-based food that it creates an immunologic response in which it is destroying their pancreas to some degree. So a type one diabetic is one in whom there is an immunologic destruction of their pancreas, they make no insulin. And similarly, there are, group of people who are type 2 diabetics who behave more like type 1 because even in the beginning, they don't have a surge of insulin. Their insulin levels are low to begin with. And I think that is probably reflective of the fact that they are destroying their pancreas through an immunologic process because of their nutrition. So that is one theory. 
And the second aspect that I think about is that all of us have different personal fat threshold. So if I take an example of somebody with a very high fat threshold would be a sumo wrestler. They can get to about 600 pounds and as they eat more and more calories, their body converts it into fat and is able to pack the fat into the fat cells and still keep their adipose tissue healthy. Their adipose tissue remains healthy, doesn't spill fat into the bloodstream and their insulin levels remain low, their inflammation markers remain low. On the other hand, there are a group of people and I can take a, a, a thin Indian who is a diabetic at the other extreme in whom their fat threshold is so slow, so small that their fat cells fill up very quickly. And as they fill up quickly, they require more and more insulin to pack fat into the fat cells. They're constantly spewing out fat into the bloodstream. So you see high triglycerides in them, you see ectopic fat in their liver and in their blood vessels. So it might be a function that the Indian and Chinese population, unfortunately, is bestowed with a very low personal fat threshold and that their fat tissue fills up so quickly that they become insulin resistant quicker and become diabetic quicker without actually getting heavy. And it may be a combination of these two factors. And, uh, and again, you know, I want to kind of tell some of my heroes from whom I got some of this information, Ted Naiman talks about personal fat threshold so well, and he has a beautiful insight into this. So these are stuff that I gathered from just being a part of uh, this community. Yeah, we had Ted on uh, a while back, you know, uh, probably what, six, eight months ago. It was a great podcast and we, we, we went into that a little bit. It's very, very fascinating. Let me go back to cardiology for a second because this is something, you know, anytime we have a specialist on there. Now, are do you, I mean, is your practice still largely interventional or do you do any, I mean, do you put your patient on, patients on medications or take them off medications? Yeah, my, my practice is, um, uh, I probably, between me and my uh, three nurse practitioners, we see um, about 30 plus patients per day. And in my hospital, I still maintain the highest volume of cath and interventions despite that. So I would do about 15, between 10 and 15 uh, cases, uh, cardiology, interventional, uh, or invasive procedures every week. So I end up uh, doing a fair number, somewhere in the range of 300 to 500 procedures a year for the last uh, 29 years. So I'm blessed by doing both. Yeah, I mean, when I when I was I was you know I was similar. I was doing something like five to six hundred orthopedic surgeries a year, which was fairly busy for an orthopedic surgeon. But the question I want to ask you, and I asked this to Brett Sharon, I just want to see what how you guys think. You know, if you have a patient that, and, and if you're doing a cath, if you're doing an intervention on somebody, they've had an event. So you've got somebody that's had a recent myocardial type problem. You know, they're they're they're, they're blocked. How do you deal with them from a lifestyle and a drug perspective? you know, just around that situation. Are you still, are we worried about lowering cholesterol in the, in the, in the post-intervention period of time? Are we just worrying about decreasing uh, inflammation? How do, you, how, do you, how do you deal with that? It's a very good question. And here I'm treading on some um, 
pretty difficult uh, legal issues. Yeah, I understand uh, that, Nadir. So I, I apologize for the question, but I, I just want to, uh, I, I, I really I, I understand where you're going it. from. Sorry. Now I come across it on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, I always strive to be honest to my patients. Um, I always try to make sure that informed consent for drug therapy is just as important as in, informed consent for a procedure. And I want to elaborate on that because that's an important point. I try to focus on lifestyle interventions a lot more than on drug therapy. I try to make sure that I explain to them how I evaluate cholesterol quality because I'm more focused in on cholesterol quality than actually reducing cholesterol because I think that high cholesterol is actually good for us. And so how do I approach statins? Let's say in the, in the most typical patient that we know would benefit. So a middle-aged person, male, who has a stand, who has a myocardial infarction, who has bypass surgery. So in this group of people, there is data from secondary prevention trials that shows a small benefit. So I think the first thing that we should admit, that people like me should admit, is that we have a bias. The second thing that we should admit is that we do not want to prevent them from getting this treatment. We want to be supportive of this treatment if they want to get it. The third thing is to go over the clinical studies with them. So I don't have the chance to go through this in all detail, but I try. And this is how it is. So if you look at the most robust clinical trial that shows benefit of statins in patients who have already had a cardiac event, that is the Forrest trial. You go back 1994 for it. Completely done by Merck. Completely done under pharmaceutical industry supervision, their own biostatisticians, they gathered their own data. It was also before 2006, and I want to get to 2006, that's an important landmark in clinical trials. And you say Merck was honest. The physicians that worked on that clinical trial were completely honest and overboard. All the data was gathered in the robust way, that there was no foul play and that I can rely on this data. Now, when you do all of that, and then you put it into actual perspective, and the only real information that I want to count is mortality benefit. The mortality benefit from this clinical trial in six years was a little less than 3%. So if you, if you treated 100 people, about 0.6 or 0.5% of patients will benefit in terms of mortality reduction. So we got to recognize that the degree of benefit we are affording our patients is very small from statins. I also think that a medicine that a person is going to take for 20, 30, 40 years, that person has a right to know and understand possible side effects. You just cannot give a medicine without discussing about side effects. And a physician has to talk about myopathy, about depression, about cognition, about the possibility of becoming a diabetic, about joint injury. So this discussion is absolutely essential before you give people a statin. So I have this discussion with them. I also have the discussion that I come from a bias standpoint that most of my colleagues 
would view this information differently. And I would be happy to follow mainstream guidelines and give you the statins, but I would also be happy to follow you and see if you're having statin side effects. And maybe that is going to get me in trouble, but I think as a physician, that is the ethically right way to behave. Now come back to 2006. Before 2006, the guidelines for conduct of clinical trials was that a drug company could do 20 trials and report only the one that is favorable to them and ignore the other 19. It was only in 2006 when the practice became so blatant that the FDA imposed that when you do any clinical trial that you at least have to publish the results on the internet. You may not have to publish it in a, in a journal. So up until then, there was very little supervision. And even now, pharmaceutical industry funded trials are the majority of trials. And those are the ones that show the robust clinical benefit Whereas the ones that are funded by NIH or other sources don't show the same degree of benefit. I don't know if that kind of convinces you or no, or how would it, uh, you know, let me pose that question back to you, Sean, and I know that you're very healthy, but let's say either you or Zach had a coronary event and had a stent, and both of you are middle-aged, would you take a statin? You know, I mean, that's, again, that, that's, I would have to say what else is going on, you know, with me at that time, you know, and, and again, to assume that I was going to have a coronary event, it would probably indicate that there's a lot of other things going on outside of just what, what, what my particular LDL level was. So it would, it, would, it would probably indicate that there's some sort of vasculopathy or endothelial damage occurring or some sort of inflammatory process. I would expect I probably have problems with insulin sensitivity. And so, you know, my, my thought would be, what would I need to do to fix those things, you know, independent of, of, of a statin, you know? Um, you know, I, I probably myself would not. I mean, but, but, but would I tell somebody else, I would, I would say that has to be, it has to be part of their decision, you know? And, and, you know, knowing what I know, I would probably say no. But I mean, if I were counseling a patient, you know, I would try to present the evidence like, like you do and let them make up their decision, make their decision. Because as, as you know, you're pretty well aware, there's a lot of potential problems with statins. I mean, we hear, we hear from the manufacturers that those, those side effects are overblown, that we should ignore them, that they're minimal. And at the same time, we, we constantly hear from patients that say they have these side effects. So, you know, you wonder who, who do you have to believe? I don't know, Zach, if you have a response to that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I would rule anything out right out the gate, but I would definitely want it to be proposed to me the way you did, where there's, there's different options or different pathways to take. And here's the, the risk benefits of each one of them so that I kind of have an informed decision to make as opposed to just like a one dimensional, like uh, uh, pathway to go like, this is the only way sort of thing. Um, but Really, what I would probably do is I would go to someone like yourself or uh, or Dr. Brett Schur, just because I know you guys have an understanding of the diet that I'm partaking in, and that you are going to give me those different options, and then I can decide at that point. But I mean, just to kind of even go back to what 
with the question that was proposed to you by Sean, it's like, to me, if you're showing all the different options available, then I think that's, that's what your, your uh, obligations would be. In my opinion, if I were the patient who came in there and heard that I would, uh, you know, I'd want to hear all the options. And if one of those is a lifestyle change, personally, that's where I'm going to start first. Cause I think so much of this stuff is, is deeper than just putting a bandaid on it with a drug. Hey, Nadir, can I ask you another question? And I'm just trying to, because, you know, as an interventionist, you've seen, you know, you're sure, you know, gazillions of angiograms, you know, you perform them, you do them. Um, do you ever, I mean, I don't know how long you've been practicing in a low carb, you know, type of situation. Are you seeing any qualitative or quantitative improvements, you know, in, in, you know, in angiograms or something that would show, that there's a benefit from diet that we can see directly on the blood vessels. Is that something you've seen at least anecdotally or in a few cases? So that's a very good question. And uh, no, I would say that uh, clinically, I have not seen that somebody with uh, a 30% uh, plaque buildup or a 30% stenosis uh, go back to 20% or zero, or they improve their coronary anatomy or their blood flow significantly. So I've not seen that. Um, but what I have consistently seen is that a lot of my patients refuse to take statins. They refuse to take statins, despite having had bypass surgery, having had stents, having had high calcium scores. And I don't see a progression in their disease process from lack of a pharmaceutical agent. And I have not seen an, a, a progression of disease process, especially when they have become insulin sensitive, when their lipoprotein profile has improved in terms of the quality that we went through, despite their LDL going up. So I can pretty much say that at least from a clinical experience, because I'm following these patients closely, I'm taking them to the cardiac cath lab when necessary. I have not seen an increase in event rate in patients with high LDL, number one, and in patients who have refused taking statins when they have followed the nutritional advice of fasting, of being low on carbs, low especially on refined carbs. And I think that that is pretty gratifying. And to me, it is also in some way comforting that my anecdotal experience is not showing a worsening of disease process. Now I cannot jump up there and say, I have seen a, an improvement in disease process. These diseases are chronic diseases and reversal may not happen overnight. It may take years and years and it probably has to be studied more rigorously. And in addition, if somebody is doing well, like let's say if somebody goes on the low carb diet and they're doing extremely well, you don't get the opportunity to take them back to the cardiac cath lab because there is no indication for doing that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's the thing. It's an invasive, invasive procedure. Because when I had my coronary artery calcium scan, it was zero. And people said, well, that's not good enough. You should have got a, you know, a, a CT angiogram. I'm like, why the hell would I have an angiogram? <laughs> I put myself, you know, submit myself to that risk to see if I have some soft plaque. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that point is well taken. But how about symptomatically? I mean, because that's the thing, you know, one of the things we can, we can look at is, you know, the incidence of angina, you know, and, and, or chest pain. 
you know, you've got people that come in, obviously, if they're going to a cath lab, they probably had chest pain. Uh, that's why they won't have them probably show up, for, I would imagine. Are you seeing people going on a low carbohydrate diet in absence of statins improving clinically from their symptoms? Oh, absolutely. Um, they feel better, they're more energetic, uh, they are more physically active with less cardiac symptoms. So uh, if a person comes into me, they've had weight loss, their insulin levels have dropped, their triglyceride levels have dropped, their HDL has improved, their inflammation markers have dropped. This person is not only, not only am I seeing surrogate markers that have improved, but I, have, I see a clinical improvement in their symptomatology. So I would agree with that. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, that's what everybody wants. We're, we're, we, want, we want to improve clinically and, and we have all these surrogate markers. And I do like the fact that the imaging can show us disease progression, whereas, whereas the biomarkers tend to be so, so dynamic that, that I, I have less faith in, in looking at those things. And we try to, we try to parse those out epidemiologically with associations. And I, I find that they're just very problematic uh, trying, to, trying, to, trying to look at population-based studies and apply that to individuals. I think it's so, so hard to do. Um, what do you find, you know, as far as compliance rates, with with diet because you know it's and again i don't know how much time you have to spend with your patients i know brett brett Shear has adopted basically part-time health coaching so he could actually do that because he feels it's more effective how are you communicating with your patients in a busy you know a busy interventional cardiology practice where you're in the cath lag a couple days a week i'm sure and then and then flying through clinic how are you getting that message across so <clears throat> i invest a lot of time in my patients I also have decided that it's better to um, make less income and offer more patient care. So I have hired a, a couple of nurse practitioners that reduces my bottom line. But at the same time, I have a more effective communication uh, with my patients because I go in there, I go through all of their data and I say, my nurse practitioner is going to go over the importance of fasting and how to do fasting. Uh, my nurse practitioner is going to explain to you about animal sourced food. And I'm going to stand here and go through an informed consent about all the medications that you're taking and go through the risks and benefits of each one of these. So I have a system in place in which I have delegated some of these aspects of nutritional counseling without uh, any extra charge to the patient, to some of the nurse practitioners that I've hired. And sometimes in many cases, I do it personally, I do it individually. Like the other day I had a patient who had all kinds of immunologic autoimmune type of disease processes, was on a lot of pain medications, had a lot of arthralgia. And she was going from doctor to doctor with different types of uh, symptoms. And I spent the time with her and discussed with her about Michaela Peterson and gave her the podcast uh, that um, Iva ran with her. And this lady calls back that same evening and she says, no physician has ever communicated with me like this. And I really would like to thank you 
for individualizing my healthcare to me. So there are ways in a busy clinical practice, if you have the right setup, if you have the right handouts, uh, if you have YouTube videos that you have put out, and I have about 25 YouTube videos on various aspects of low-carb diet, on fasting, on cholesterol, on fiber, that my patients, or on stomach acid or vitamin D, and my patients are given access to those. Of course, the access is there free of charge to anyone. I freely share with them information about you, about Amber, so they Google you and research you and go and find you. So there are ways in which you can communicate with the patient. You can't charge for it. You can't charge to run a nutritional seminar. You can't charge for them to watch your YouTube videos. But definitely, you can improve healthcare delivery in a 15-minute visit or a 30-minute visit that you're given with a patient and be more effective communicators. And that's what I strive to do. And the question that I have uh, constantly to myself is that, am I burning myself out by working this hard? And should I take a step back and say, hey, I'm gonna let other people do this and focus more on writing book, uh, talking on podcasts like you are, uh, creating YouTube videos. So I'm not sure where in my career I am, but this much I do know that it's a very fruitful life and it's a very meaningful life if I just continue doing what I'm doing. I so, think I mean, one thing to think about too with, with that stuff is just the way that the the message is is delivered because I think when we look at you know diet failures, you'll see stats that say like ninety five percent of people who take on a, a diet or a fad diet, quote unquote, will ultimately regain the weight they lost and then some. And to me, sometimes that's just poor programming on on the user's part and not necessarily to their fault because you know people will see like their friend will say, hey, I lost you know thirty pounds following the keto diet, and then that person's like, well, I'm going to try that, and then they kind of just do a like a surface level dive into what a keto diet is, implement it, maybe have some success, but ultimately fall off versus someone who goes to you and is actually guided through the potential pitfalls and just the right protocol and stuff. So I would imagine like the success rate of someone who's going to take a low carb, high fat approach to nutrition going into some a clinic like yours versus going at it their own is going to be a vastly different percentage of success. Yeah, I, I would like to think so. And and I, 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 would, I would agree with you, Zach, because when people get to understand the science behind it and just don't see it as a diet alone, when they learn to recognize what hyperinsulinemia does to them, when they learn to recognize what foods stimulate hunger, how can, how can they control their cravings, what is the science behind it, then they are more likely to stick to the diet. When, say, when they see their numbers improve, they're saying, hey, not only am I having health benefits, but look at all these biomarkers. I was a diabetic on so many medications, now I don't need them. My blood pressure has improved, my cholesterol quality has gotten better. These are reinforcers. And your physician and your healthcare provider is another reinforcer. So I thank you for uh, 
giving me the credit that I think that we do a better job at communicating this information to our patients so that they do better. Nadir, you know, I want to say that, I mean, it is immensely rewarding, not so much in a financial sense, but in a, in a personal satisfaction sense that you're actually helping people. I mean, I mean, I'm speaking from my own personal experience, but I'm sure you share that and that you're probably happier at practice now that it's not just grinding out, you know, stents day in and day out and that you're actually seeing people. But let me ask you, because, you know, obviously if you get patients to come to you and they've had an MI and you go over your, you know, the drug consent, you know, and they, and they elect to come off of a statin. Mm-hmm. And then they go back to their primary care physician. And the primary care physician goes, what the hell? You just, had a, you just had a heart attack. Why are you off your statin? Do you get any blowback from the providers in the local community asking you what's going on here? Oh, <clears throat> it happens all the time. And it's an uphill battle. And <clears throat> you get labeled. You get labeled as somebody who doesn't practice clinical guidelines. You get reported to the hospital administration. You get reported to the medical staff. Um, people badmouth you behind your back. And you have to deal with all of that. Now, I constantly face all of this. Um, many of my colleagues, rather than sitting and having a conversation with me, bad, badmouth me behind my back. And um, it's, it not, it's not just that, but I think that an inevitable part of patient care and a good part of patient care for a cardiologist is to pay attention to metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance. And when you do that, by design, you're stepping on the toes of the endocrinologist and the primary physician, because these patients are going to have to alter their diabetic medications. And you get a lot of pushback from the endocrinologist, from the primary physicians, as to why are you doing this? Why are you measuring insulin levels in these patients? And I feel as a cardiologist, if I don't understand how insulin works, if I don't understand what the work of Dr. Joseph Kraft is, that I'm not treating patients well. In fact, one of the ways, a poor man's way of measuring insulin resistance comes right from the lipid profile. It's called LPIR, lipid profile insulin resistance. And it's based primarily on a nomogram between triglycerides and HDL. So, um, you know, I, I, I feel bad that my colleagues are upset at me. I find that about five to 10% of my uh, physician colleagues are completely behind me. They are supportive. They understand what I'm doing. Uh, They are proud of the work I do. And it's very gratifying to see that. About 15 to 20% of my physician's uh, colleagues are either envious or angry at me for some reason or the other. And the rest 70% don't care one way or the other. And I don't know how your experience has been. Uh, it is a difficult world to navigate, and it requires diplomacy. And unfortunately, I'm a little abrasive, and I wish I had bet a personality like Brett Share, but I don't. 
Yeah, I've, I've, I, I'm not one of, to back down either. And it was kind of funny when I was ordering insulin resist or insulin fasting insulin levels on orthopedic patients. I got a lot of people's eyebrows raised because that's so far outside of the realm where I would normally, you know, with an orthopedic surgeon would normally practice. You know, I probably be one of the few orthopedic surgeons in history that have ordered a fasting insulin. But you know, it's kind of it is. I mean, but I mean, you know, I, I would say God bless you and others like you that are willing to stand out there and do what you think is right for your patients, despite all of the, the negativity that comes your way. Cause I, I know it's there. I experienced it myself, but you know, and, and I do think that as again, this, this, what we're doing right now, this podcast, this social media interaction is growing and we're seeing more. I see more and more people every day, new physicians that are kind of, maybe they're not bought into this yet, but they're, they're looking, they're listening and they're learning. And, and we can just see it by sharing you know, our patient successes, you know, and, and that's why, you know, like things like meat heels and, and some of the other, and just putting up these transformations day in and day out at some point, you know, you can't, this is a thing. You can't use anecdotes, you know, to say it's completely the, the scientific evidence, but at the same time, you cannot ignore anecdotes. And I think some people are out there saying, well, anecdotes aren't the most powerful part, part of, you know, science. Therefore, we can completely ignore them, and you can't just completely ignore them because that's how you make hypotheses. And and I think it's it's you know at this point it's becoming, you know, mind you, I can't even keep up at this point. I've got so many people sending me their success stories, and I just I just don't have enough hours in a day to share them all. I try to do as many as I can, but it's it's, it's becoming overwhelming. And I think I think that's a good thing. It's a good problem to have, in my view. And I think I just think that we're going to see. You know, there was a list I got put on of, you know, cholesterol deniers incorporated, you know, like 20 or 20 doctors or whatever. I made, I made the list, you know, and, I, and I'm, just, I'm telling the guy that wrote that list, you better keep up because within two or three years, that list is going to be not 20 people, but thousands of people. Thousands. So he's going to have to expand his list because I think it's what's going to happen. Well, I want to make a couple of points, if I may. One is that I would like to be on that, to, to have the honor to be on that list. <laughs> and the second point that I want to make is about clinical trials because, you know, like you said, uh, N of 1 studies, anecdotal evidence is not strong enough and good enough. And I'd like to take the other point because right now, uh, let us take a large clinical trial in which they are using the PCSK9 inhibitor. It is the new drug that makes uh, the liver taking all the LDL cholesterol and reduces LDL cholesterol down to 30, 30. So I want to take that clinical trial that was done as an example of how ridiculous a clinical trial can be. So this is a 28,000 patient study. It's done by the manufacturer in about 25 to 30 different countries in 400 clinical centers. The data gathering is done by the by the sponsor. The coordinators are hired by the sponsor. The physicians are hired by the sponsor. And you take 28,000 patients and half of them you give this inhibitor, the other half you don't. So 14,000 in each group. You drop the LDL cholesterol down to 30 milligrams per deciliter. That is so low. And yet at the end of the trial, you say, hey, there is no mortality difference. In fact, more people who took the drug died than in the people who didn't take the drug. And then yet you come out with statistical jargon that says, this was a great clinical trial. It showed so much benefit. 
So my point is that if you need 28,000 patients in 30 countries and 400 centers in a clinical trial that is completely done by people who have bias, and yet at the end of that, you're going to show a half a percent difference, not even in a mortality outcome, you're asking the wrong question in the first place. That is meaningless information. That is just noise. And you can't make drug decisions, policy decisions based on that. So I'd like to take the other approach and say that the way clinical trials are designed these days, they are giving you junk information. They are not giving you any information that, is any meaning, uh, that has any meaning to our life. And it is the N of one experiments. It is these anecdotes that are providing the most powerful demographic population-based information on which we have to base our clinical decisions at this point. That's, that's awesome. And I think it resonated with what Brett told us earlier today too, where, you know, when he has a, a patient come in, he's looking for their biofeedback and he's using that as the guide as well to use as the next step, as well as some of these blood markers and things like that. So, you know, I think the comforting thing to any listener with that is, you know, if you get to know what good, what a good biofeedback and bad biofeedback is, you can do a lot of these things on your own and be your own N equals one experiment. I agree. Nadir, I mean, just, you know, saying that you, you, you appreciate the power of anecdotes, you know, I mean, there, there was a time when, when physicians observed their patients and that is how they practice medicine, to see what worked in their patients. And now mm-hmm. it's kind of, we're kind of told what to do by people that make drugs a lot of times. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of people that will completely and vehemently disagree with your, your, your assumption or your, your belief in that, that we should listen to patients and listen to their N equals one stories and their anecdotes. Uh, that's people say that's not very scientific. They'll say that that's not how science is done. You know, there's too many problems with that. Uh, but, but, you know, so much of the research, particularly when we look at population studies, I mean, they're basically just anecdotes collated together. I mean, these food frequency studies where they ask a person what they ate for the last six months, I mean, nobody knows. And so I, you know, I, at the same time, I think that, you know, we should push to have some more studies done in the area of nutrition uh, that, you know, really answer the questions better. You know, like I said, when I was up there and you saw at the carnivore conference, I said, if we want to know what meat does to us, let's test meat. Let's not test meat plus 75 other things and try to determine what that is by isolating this variable. But you know, it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard argument to make for many people uh, because we have uh, a very much top down uh, approach. You know, we, 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 we listen to it coming from, from above and then, and then it filters down to the masses. But I, but I do think there's a, because the success of that has been so abysmal. I mean, you know, the reason you're, you've got a busy practice is because there's so many people that have, have you know, the, the, the nutrition and the health advice has failed. That's why, you're, that's why you're able to do, you know, 300 casts a year or something like that. And that's why I was able to do, you know, 600 orthopedic procedures a year is because we've got such a mess, you know. And so I, I don't know what it's going to take. Uh, to turn it around. I mean, I see these arguments that go on politics of how to pay for healthcare and what's the single payer, multi-payer, private. 
you know, what, whatever. And, and, I, and I, I liken that to, to rearranging the decks on the Titanic. You know, we're, we're, just, we're just pissing around, wasting time when, when we, we should be fundamentally changing the, thing, the way we do things. But uh, I don't know, maybe there's a change. Enough, enough people are going to do this, and it's good to see physicians you know, of reasonable like mind that, that maybe, maybe there'll be enough of us that we can, we can turn this around and, and have the support of the patients. How long do you think that's going to take? Because you are at the forefront of this. You know, I think, you know, we had Gary Fetke on a while ago and he talked about the concept of the school, turning the school of fish around. And so, you know, there's, and, and you know, that, that's, that's an analogy, but he says about when, when 3% adopt something, that may be enough to change momentum. And so I don't know if we, we've got 3% of physicians on board with low carb or not, but I mean, certainly uh, when it comes to the weight loss community, you know, and, and weight loss and, and, and the weight loss industry is not necessarily the health industry, but we're seeing that in the weight loss industry, these ketogenic diets are now sort of supplanting the, the, the weight watchers type of thing. There's a lot of blowback and complaints and we see all these media ads about keto crotch and, you know, AFib, <laughs> low, cardi- you know low, low carb diets are going to give you AFib and or heart cardiac arrhythmias and, and eggs are going to keep, we see just a string of those coming out almost as a retaliation to this, this new phenomenon. So I don't know that we're, we've reached that threshold in healthcare yet, but I, I don't think it's going to be that much far behind, you know, maybe in the next, you know, three to five years, we'll, we'll see a significant shift. I mean, I just think, I encourage people to tell their doctor what they're doing. Because, you know, the doctors will say, well, that doesn't make sense. And then if they get 10 patients in there, they keep saying it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. This is a paradox. This is a paradox. After a while, they have to, they have to realize that, you know, it's like, it's like uh, you know, we've got all these paradoxes out there, the French paradox. And, you know, it's, it's you know, why, why do these people live longer? And, and when, 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 you know, because I, I encourage anybody that, that heals their, their, their particular condition, go see your doctor and tell, you what, tell them what you did. You know, and I, it was kind of sad. I just, somebody sent me a message about they had somebody who had cancer and they, they, you know, and this, this is very controversial, but they, they I think it was, to, to, was some type of cancer and they ended up saying, I don't want to do chemo anymore. I don't want to do radiation more. I want to treat it with diet. And, and they did treat it with diet and they saw regression of their cancer and their doctor basically fired them. He said, I don't want to see you anymore rather than just manage them, which I think, I think that's the worst thing you could do. I mean, you should at least support the patient even if you disagree with what they're doing, you know, you should still at least follow up like you're doing, you know, we're going to follow up your disease progression, you know, and see, see what happens. So, but I, I do, you know, I, like I said, it's going to take a lot of work from a lot of people and it's going to be just as much a, a, a physician. I mean, a patient led effort to, to, to educate the physician somewhat sometimes, because I mean, I, I found that I learned a lot from my patients, you know, and, and I, if I had a patient as an orthopedic guy, somebody would come in with a rare disease that had nothing to do with orthopedics and I would know next to nothing about it because it's just not my specialty, but they would know everything. I mean, they would know far more and I would learn from those guys day in and day out. And the same thing with nutrition, with nutrition, physicians know very little about nutrition as a whole. Now there's some people that that understand it very well, but when, when a, when a patient comes into the office doing a particular diet and all of a sudden they're off the diabetes meds and their blood pressure goes away and they've lost 50 pounds and they tell their physician, you know, maybe their physicians should start taking, paying attention to this stuff. I mean, it's shocking as it is. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I, I certainly have learned a lot about this field from my patients themselves. So yeah, that, that, that's, that's completely accurate. And I think I agree with you too, that 
probably in the next three to five years, the tide is going to change. Some of these guidelines are going to be rewritten on nutrition. And I'm so happy that we have a very robust and very collegial atmosphere in the low carb community. And we have great people such as yourself and Nina Taishors and Zoe and, and many, many others who are contributing. Yeah, it's a fun time, you know, it's also, but I, but I do see there's going to be a lot of pushback, you know, particularly as this threatens more and more, you know, because a lot of it, is, there's a lot of money out there that's being at threat. And I, and I see as, as, you know, people are probably willing to tolerate a certain percentage. And once that, that percentage really starts to affect bottom lines, then I, then I think there's going to be, you know, there may be something significant that happens, you know, from a, from a, uh, you know, you know, you know, you know, can you, I can imagine, you know, like, well, they, they, they already sort of censor uh, certain types of, you know, belief systems. And so it may, they may identify uh, people that they, they, they deem dangerous, you know, whether it's people that don't like vaccines or people that don't like, uh, you know, or say the cholesterol is contributing to heart disease they may try to, you know, censor those people in some way. I mean, just to try to stop them from saying that and saying it's dangerous and not allowing you to be on social media. I mean, I, I just, I just wonder if that's coming. I'm just, I'm just, you know, have to worry about that. I hope not. I, I hope that we are promoting science and not advocacy that we are telling our patients that, Hey, we are telling you all this information, but you are the ultimate judge, both in terms of the information we are giving you, but also in following your health and seeing how you are feeling and doing and how your biomarkers are changing, how your weight is changing. So I think that this journey should be definitely a journey of science and not of advocacy, that we should be open to change, that we should listen to others and be willing to communicate. And I hope that our colleagues also give us the courtesy in return to listen to us. Yeah, I think that's a great sentiment. I, I, but I do, you know, I, I agree. I think the science is ultimately, or and what I, you know, I like to talk about results, you know, because <laughs> again, science and evidence is, is difficult to, to determine, but results are pretty, pretty obvious in most cases. And so I, instead of evidence-based medicine, I like to go with results-based medicine. I think that's where we should really be focusing. And, you know, and like I said, and, and whose results, what are the results? And I, and I would say I leave it up to the patient a lot of times because ultimately your, our job is to take care of patients and it's to get them better. It's not to make necessarily make their, you know, lab values match a particular guideline or be on a certain medical regimen it's to make them happier and healthier and productive and feel better. And, and, and like I said, when, when, you know, I mean, patients know when they're better and, you know, you can, you can have a patient with the best looking labs in the world and they can absolutely be miserable. And if we don't mm -hmm. understand that and, and, and you know, and it, and it makes us look good as physicians, you know, there are a lot of physicians where they're even financially, they're rewarded for hitting these metrics, which might not benefit the patient at all. I mean, it looks good on paper, but at the end of the day, your patient's still miserable. So, I mean, hopefully we, we, we transition away from what's called evidence-based medicine to results-based medicine. That's what I, I hope the next evolution is. I agree. I, I couldn't agree more. 
Zach, what else? What else? Do you, any other questions, Zach? I mean, we we've been going. We've had a great we've had a great talk so far today. Yeah, no, awesome. we've got this. Will this will be a, a long one? But uh, that's not a problem at all. We're we're very gracious for your for your your time, Nadir. And if you have anything you want to share in terms of where folks can find you, feel free to do so. Um, I say that with a little bit of reservation because now what's happened is that so far I was running under the radar, <laughs> and um, but now, like today, I had a patient come in from Dallas, another come in from Oklahoma, and I hate for them to have to drive all the way out here uh, looking for a cure and stuff like that because I just offer something very straightforward and most of this information they can find on the internet. But hey, I have a practice in Houston that you can look up and I'm not looking for more patients. I'm just wanting to make my life meaningful and uh, do the best I can with patient care. So th that's all I have to say, Zach. Um, awesome. I, I, I cannot tell you how much anguish I have when I see a patient coming from out of state to see me. Well, I mean, hopefully there'll be, there'll be a, a Nadir Ali in every state and every city that they can. I hope so. Uh, that's the goal. And like I said, it's one of the things I'm trying to do this year is find, you know, networks of physicians that are willing to take care of patients that are adopting animal, animal food-based diets, uh, you know, and, and try to, there's a lot of things I want to try to do, you know, finding ranchers and producers that want to support that and, and people that want to support those ranchers, but also the physician side, because even people eating an animal-based diet get sick from time to time. They need somebody that can support them and, you know, help them out. And so rather than, you know, having a doctor that'll condemn them and criticize them for, for doing a keto diet or a carnivore diet or whatever, we want somebody to support them. So I, I would assume you'd be willing to do that for the patients in the Houston area. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if you uh, uh, heard my presentation at Low Carb Denver. Uh, Brett, uh, in his title, it says Low Carb Cardiologist. And I wanted to name my first slide as Carnivore Cardiologist. <laughs> <laughs> So let me yeah, hey, get a one up them, right? Are you, hey, <laughs> Nadir, are you doing a, a carnivorous diet currently? Is that what you're doing? Yes. Uh, last two weeks, I've been on a carnivorous diet. My wife is trying her best to sabotage it. <laughs> blueberries and, uh, and uh, all kinds of mangoes these days. I mean, can you believe even mangoes are in season right now? Mm. Uh, I don't know where they get them from. And so I'm having a tough time, but in the last two weeks, I have cheated only a couple of times with a small <laughs> amount of fruits after exercise, that's after perfect. a three-hour bike ride. I'm sure that's fine. That's, that's good. That'll be interesting to see. So it's, it's, you may be the world's yeah. first carnivore cardiologist. That could be, uh, I bet you are. You probably could be. <laughs> and I can tell you that I am not constipated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's always awesome. <laughs> Well, wonderful. This has been great, Zach. Um, so, I mean, on, on, on Twitter, you go by, what is it, Mostly Fat Ali or something like yeah, that? Or what yeah. is it? Yeah, Eat Mostly Fats Ali. Okay, Eat Mostly Fat Ali. Okay, and that's, and that's uh, uh, your handle. And then, and then there's a website they can find. I mean, there's a, they can look your practice up in, in Clear Lake, which is near Houston. Yeah, my office has a very good uh, person who runs a Facebook uh, group, which is called Eat Mostly Fat. And my website is not very robust at all. Uh, I have not devoted enough time, but it is eatmostlyfat.com. But I think the best way for people to get my message 
is to look at the podcast or look at the YouTube videos. Because if they put my name, Nadir Ali MD, in YouTube, they will get 25 plus of my videos. And uh, it covers a broad range of topics. Is that your YouTube channel then, or is it just YouTube channels? That's, channel? my, that's oh, okay, my YouTube cool. channel. And we'll but definitely are, link that. Yeah, but there are others, like two keto dudes have posted a good video on me. The Low Carb Denver has posted a video on me. So uh, are, uh, they are, can look at those also. Are you doing any more uh, talking this, speaking this year? Are you doing any more conferences or anything? So I'm really blessed. Um, in June, I go for KetoCon. Uh, hopefully in July, uh, I will be at KetoFest. Uh, and then in August, I will be at uh, Dr. Berg, Eric Berg's uh, Keto Summit in Maryland. And then finally in October, and I tried my best to get you here last year, but this year you're not going to say no, and you're going to come to Low Carb Houston. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, I'm going to visit your family. And yeah, that'd be great. What, when, when is that so I can put it on my calendar? It's October 25th to 27th. Okay, the end of October. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll mark that down. That'd be fun. Yeah, I, I, I love going to Texas. I'm going to Austin for Paleo Fest in, uh, in the it, end of April. End of April. Yeah, then I think I may be going to Malaysia at the beginning of October. I'm glad that Low Carb Houston's in the end of October. So that would be wonderful. Yeah, put me, sign me up. I'm happy to. I'd love to, love to. We'll go, we'll go uh, eat some meat together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you and Zach are going to be here, and I'm going to take you to Pinkerton's, which is the best barbecue in the world. Pinkerton's? The best Texas bris brisket in the world. That's a big claim. That's a big claim for I'm Texas. I'm looking up right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, well, awesome. Well, I think uh, this has been wonderful. We've, got a, we've had, you know, almost three and a half hours of cardiology today, which has been good. We've, got a, we've still got one more to do today. <laughs> we're... we're we're, we're, we're uh, gluttons for putting out, and this has been enjoyment. So anyway, gluttons for enjoyment. Anyway. Well, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on your podcast. Well, I always excited. enjoy talking to you. We'll, we'll be excited to get this out. It'll probably come out in about two weeks or so. Um, maybe we'll have cardiology week. We might even, this might even be a two-parter, Zach. I don't know. It's getting there. Yeah, it's, all, it's long enough we could split it into two, and that would be a full week if we keep that'd going. Be, through. Be cardiology week. <laughs> awesome. So anyway, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Zach, thank you. Look forward to seeing you soon. Hey, take care. Bye. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.